Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's the week of July 4th, so we brought all Industry Focus hosts together for a roundtable discussion of what's been going on in the market this year. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by Industry Focus hosts Shannon Jones, Dylan Lewis, and Jason Moser. How's it going, guys? Great hey, buddy. Hey. hey. It's great to have you guys here. We did one of these back in December, so I thought it'd be fun to come back around again and, and see what's been going on in the market. It's been a big year so far. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is kind of where the market's at today. So we first did one of these roundtable shows back in December. The market was at a very different point than it is today. The market was down as much as 20% off its highs. The Fed had just raised interest rates another quarter of percent uh, to 2.5%. And there seemed to be a general belief that the US-China trade dispute was starting to wind down and that you know co- uh, calmer heads might prevail. Uh, but today, the market has just made a new high. We're pricing in a 100% chance of a Fed rate cut this year. And we're just as strained with China as we have been. Uh, as y'all look at the market today, what are your thoughts on where we stand and you know where we're going forward? I feel like we've been talking about the market being overvalued <laughs> now for like seven years. Um, I mean, it really—I mean, we really have. I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time, and um, it just seems to keep on going up. And now we're in the face of talking about actually, you know, rates being cut, which we would not have even imagined just a year ago, probably. I mean. It's kind of kind of a weird place. Yeah, I subbed in for you on the financial show I and, heard. Ta- and talked Fed rates. I listened and, to that you know, show. I had a great time. I know uh, you sounded really good. Frankel. You did a great job there. I did. I did my homework. What can I say? <laughs> but we were talking about rates and the idea of a rate cut when rates are as low as they are is kind of baffling to me, especially when you look at some of the other economic data out there. I mean, unemployment three point six percent, the labor force participation rate isn't as strong as unemployment. It's about 63%, which hasn't really recovered from where it was pre-recession. Um, and the inflation rate's like 1.8%, which is not that crazy. And yet, this is the conversation that we're having. Yeah, it's one of those things where, where you look at some of those indicators and the market seems to be really flying high. But there are, are some areas you can look and the, the indicators aren't quite as positive. If you look at something like layoffs, so the first quarter of 2018, we had the highest number of layoffs in a first quarter since 2010. Uh, we've got layoffs up through May this year, up 39% year over year. In the industrial sector, it's been particularly pronounced uh, with layoffs up 671% year over year. Uh, we've seen some indicators. Uh, so RV sales have been a predictor in the past two recessions uh, of, of the, the market starting to turn over. Uh, we saw RV sales in 2018 decline about 4.5%. That was a predictor of both the dot-com bubble as well as the 2008 recession. Um, and you know we, we've seen uh, other parts of the industrial market. So, so about six months ago, Nucor, one of the largest steel producers in the U.S., has traditionally been very you know, in touch with the cycle. I was talking about you know, investing large amounts in new plants and new, new steel capacity. Just this month, they've announced that they're going to be idling steel plants. So you have this disconnect between uh, interest, ra- I mean, interest rates and unemployment rates with you know, in the industrial sector of the economy, there appears to be a slowdown um, in some of those metrics. So, it, you know, what are, what are y'all's thoughts when you see this disconnect between, you know, the bending metal part of the economy versus the valuations we're seeing in the market? Uh, well, I think part of the reason people are thinking about this stuff is we see this flurry of IPOs. And we're going to touch on this later in the show. But when you see a lot of companies <laughs> trying to get liquidity after enjoying all these private rounds of funding for such a long time, uh, that's where you start to wonder, OK, why are, you, why are you trying to cash out? And so, yeah, I mean, the, the tech side of things, the software side of things has been absolutely gangbusters. It doesn't seem like everyone's participated in that growth, though. 
Sure. I mean, and you've seen uh, SoftBank has been talking about raising another another big vision fund that to kind of they've been behind a lot of the, this increase in valuations, but they've seen some trouble into raising funds uh, for a second fund. I think Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have both said they've been reluctant to add funds. When you see that type of private capital desire to invest in those markets starting to, starting to slow down, just as we see this this push into IPOs. Uh, there see, again, there seems to be a disconnect between the valuation that the market is placing versus what's actually happening behind the scenes in some of these some of these areas. Yeah, and I think with the IPO market, there is definitely some cyclicality. Um, so I do think we are at a peak. Um, we were talking about a number of different kind of leading indicators. Of course, we never know um, that the market is truly like in a recession until after the fact. But I mean, <laughs> if you take some of those leading indicators, um, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York right now has a 27% uh basically likelihood that we will enter a recession within the next 12 months. That's the highest it's been since about 2007. Um, so pretty, and they're basically basing that off of the spread between yields for the 10-year and uh, I think three-year Treasury yields. So, I mean, I think when you take all of those factors into play, you've got a very frothy market. You've got valuations astronomically high. I mean, I think it's not a matter of of if a recession is coming, it's more matter right now of when. Um, I don't think, of course, with us being long-term foolish investors, I, I, I think, and we'll probably get to some of the things that we should be doing with all of this, but I don't think it's a time for panic. Do you I, feel like maybe this frothiness of the market is due, I mean, at least in part, but it seems to me a lot in part, there probably is this feeling at this point that whenever things get a little bit shaky, that, you know, the government's going to come in there and rescue things by altering interest rates or doing something to keep things headed in the right direction. It's almost like they're trying to postpone the inevitable. I mean, you said it. Recession's a matter of when, not if. It's just we're going to have another one. It's just a matter, you know, when it is, and who cares when? I guess really, if you're prepared for it, then it gives you the opportunity to buy, um, you know, good good companies at good prices. But I mean, we had a, a tweet that came in a little while back from Tom at Cashflow underscore Fool who asked, "So if a weak economy." Will always be hedged by low interest rates, but a strong economy will be fueled by strong earnings growth. Besides war, what could actually turn this market on its head? And I mean, it's a fair question because at this point, this thing almost seems bulletproof. But I mean, yeah, there are things out there. I mean, to my mind, one of the things that's a big, you know, shoe to drop is this one and a half trillion dollars in student debt. Right? Yes. I mean, ninety percent of that's guaranteed by us. And I mean, it is unsustainable. Like people can't afford those bills. And when you get out of college and your first job is waiting tables or a low-paying job in the service industry, which it often is, it's just very difficult to overcome that mountain of debt that people are accumulating just to go to college when they're not even certain what they want to do in the first place. Unless Bernie Sanders flies in with his red cape and saves us all <laughs> by eliminating all student no. debt. I love that we have all independently prepared notes, and so many of the things that you guys have talked about are in the notes that I've prepared. So many of the stats. <laughs> we all and just took from you, Dylan. It wasn't even a Google Doc. I don't know how you did it. Um, yeah, I, I honed in on that, too, that a $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, and I was looking at that over time. That has doubled yeah. in the last decade. That's incredible. It's a lot of money. Yeah, and there, there's some indications where you can look at comparisons between, say, you know, my parents' generation and our generation. Our student loan debt is much higher than theirs, but our, in, but our credit card debt has actually been lower. It's a question about you know how those factors shake out. I, I think, but to, to that Twitter question though, I, I think it, to me I, I, that sounds as very much of a this time is different. 
mm, argument yes. that, and I, you know, as you know, John Templeton famously said, that's the four most dangerous words in investing. Uh, I'm still a net buyer of stocks. I don't know about, about you guys, but uh, I think there are there are some signs of to be concerned and to not be maybe as aggressive as you might be at, at different times in the cycle. So typically, I'm at about 10% cash in my portfolio. I'm right now up to about 15%, um, only because I want to be opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a if it's more a matter of when it's going to happen, um, I'm ready to load up on some names, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point as well. But like. I, I'm actually just starting to boost my cash to be able to dive into some of my top picks. I, too, have a little bit more cash than I normally do. Um, That's not from having sold stuff. It's from just not having put as much into the market recently. Uh, I will say, I think, if nothing else, this is a great reminder of why 401ks are awesome. Yeah, There there are so many reasons to love 401k programs. You have pre-tax contributions. uh, You have people that wouldn't normally be investing, getting into the market via mutual funds and the diversification that comes there. But the reason that I love them so much is if you're getting paid twice a month uh, over the course of the year, if you're participating in your 401k program, you're buying 24 different times. And, and I think that that is the mindset that you should try to have with your portfolio, is mm-hmm. realize that you need to capitalize on those dips, but you're never going to catch the absolute height. You're probably never going to catch the absolute bottom of the market. Just buy in regularly. We were talking about that at Fool Fest a lot. And I mean, that's one of my favorite things. You know, David Gardner and Tom Gardner both have done such a good job through the years of teaching us to never stop investing. And and I think, you know, we want to make sure people understand we're not saying you know you you just buy any stock anytime and you know it's all good. I mean, there are times when like we're talking about it does seem like maybe it's a bit frothy and you're not as confident in some of the valuations out there. But if you have a 401k plan like we do, then every paycheck you have money that's dollar cost averaging into you know your fund of choice. In my case, it's just an S and P 500 index fund that I'm investing into in my um, 401k. So while I'm not buying uh, individual stocks right now, hand over fist, I'm, I'm raising a little bit of cash myself. Every paycheck, I'm still investing. And and to your point, that's happening all throughout the year at the highs, at the lows, and over over time, it really does smooth out the lumpiness there. And and you know those charts, the 10, 15, 20 year S and P charts, they all go just one way. Yeah, yeah. that's a, to the right, baby. That's a great way, I think, too, to take the emotion out of it, right? Yeah, because you've absolutely. got all of these fear mongering headlines out there. You know, a recession is coming, but when you're doing it on a consistent basis, when it's scheduled, you're taking not only the thought out of it, but really the emotional. So you're not making these knee-jerk reactions. Yeah, and I think it's also a humility thing too. You can see all these all these numbers lined up, uh, you know, in a row for a long period of time, but you're never gonna know when the market when a recession is going to hit and the market can stay rational for a long period of time. So uh, I think continuing to invest even even in times when you're a little bit of skeptical is part of, you know, maybe having some humility that you might not always be right. And uh, you know, over the long term the odds are in your favor. So if you can continue to invest steadily, things will work out for you. Um, Another story that has been in the news this year, and like the idea of the, the, the economy might start to slow down, the idea that big tech and antitrust is going to come for them has been kind of rumbling beneath the surface probably for the past several years now. And in the past six months to a year, we've really seen uh, things start to pick up pace. Uh, presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren took some first shots announcing that big tech needed to be broken up and announcing a plan to do so. But even more recently, uh, we've seen the FTC and the DOJ kind of carve out uh, their zones of influence when it comes to enforcing uh, antitrust law. So reports indicate that the Justice Department has state control over antitrust investigations into Google, while the FTC is going to handle investigations in Amazon and Facebook. 
as you see big tech finally the antitrust bell starting to ring for them what are your thoughts when you look at these companies and and where they could go moving forward so i'm going to say here this antitrust um the focus on it right now is so different than in the past because it's not about price at this point right um many of these tech companies are offering their services completely free of charge um i think this is much more about just data and about privacy so it's a, a, a just a very different environment that we're in um, I would say that I don't necessarily agree that they should be broken up because they are providing services that are actually helpful and useful. Um, I will say there needs to be more regulation, especially when it comes to data and privacy. Yeah, I think with those names that are in this conversation, you know, you hear Google or Alphabet, uh, you hear Amazon, you hear Apple, um, you hear Facebook. Uh, with Facebook and with Alphabet in particular, I think it's much more about influence and the reach of the platforms and the desire to possibly break them up because they haven't done a good job policing themselves. With Amazon, I do think it's a bit of an economic thing where there is an unbelievable advantage that they have by basically owning all their cloud infrastructure and then being able to work that into their e-commerce systems. But how you do that is kind of difficult because if you think about it from an investing perspective, there, there's an idea that some of these businesses, the parts may be worth more than the, the, some of the whole. There are efficiencies gained there, but you break them out. There might be some shareholder value there. You look at a company like Amazon, well, would you want to own their American e-commerce business? I mean, single-digit margins, it's not growing nearly as fast as AWS, which is like 30% margins. I, I think you would wind up some very weird investor decisions that would have to be made if these got broken up. Possibly. I mean, I, I, I probably would want to own their retail business just because of the, I mean, the point of saturation now. Maybe 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been quite as obvious. But um, yeah, I, I do feel like, I mean, it's very difficult to argue that consumers aren't getting an awesome deal with these businesses. I mean, like the services they provide are stellar, and in most cases, we don't have to pay for them. Now, when it comes to Amazon, again, they're not turning the screws on us price wise. And frankly, I mean, Walmart is considerably bigger still uh, from a revenue perspective. The market's just telling us they know where this ball is headed. And, um, so, I mean, that's why I think it gives Amazon sort of the benefit of the doubt there. The one to me that, that just really doesn't fit with the other ones, I guess, um, is Apple. And I mean, a lot of it has to do with, I think, Shannon, you're right in that a lot of this really centers around privacy and how, how they control our data. Um, and, and they have to redefine antitrust from that perspective in order to really make that fit. But to me, Apple is the one that. I mean, Tim Cook's legacy, I think, is going to be his stance on privacy. And I mean, I, I, I really like his. He takes a firm stance on it. I think he's he's great for the company, um, and I, I I do hope he continues to take that stance because to me that is something that will always define ultimately what is most important to Apple. I think people feel a lot more comfortable knowing that they are policing themselves a little bit more uh, than. Companies like Alphabet and Facebook, and I mean even Amazon to a degree. I'd like to have Nick put on his lawyer hat here for <laughs> yeah. a second because he likes to dust off that JD every now and then and uh, and take the legal look at things. And I know you were you were kind of thinking about this through the legal thought exercise of, of how people might approach it. Listen, guys, here to for the contract, <laughs> notwithstanding. You know, like, all right. Yeah, let me let me think up a Latin word. Uh, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so kind of to Jamie's point, I mean, the way antitrust law has traditionally been set up, it's about 
market power and the power to raise prices. And when you have companies that are selling their services, you know, for essentially zero to the end consumer, uh, the people that are concerned about their privacy, that, that is an issue uh, that the law just wasn't designed to serve. And, the, you know, th- these cases are going to be decided by how the market is defined. So when you have an antitrust case, the first thing you do is you define what the market is. And for anybody who follows any of these tech companies, they like to define their market in a way that doesn't make them seem like monopoly, okay? So so Google doesn't, you know, Alphabet, Google doesn't come out and say, hey, we have a 90% plus global share in search giving us, you know, a 90% plus global share in search advertising. No, they say we have a 2% share in global advertising spend. Likewise, Amazon, you know, as Jason had mentioned, is going to say, hey, we're not even the biggest retailer in the U.S. I mean, Walmart has, you know, whatever, double, I mean, some crazy amount more revenue Mm -hmm. than Amazon does through their operations. So the question is going to be, Assuming these companies don't settle, which I think is, is a real uh, thing that could happen, assuming this is something that goes to trial, it's going to be a battle of what the, the market is that these companies are operating in. And it's to be determined how that is going to be defined. Obviously, these folks have really high legal budgets. They're going to do the best they can to protect their competitive advantage. Um, we'll just have to see how things shake out. But assuming you define the market narrowly enough, so if you define Facebook's market as social media, there's no doubt that they have market power. I mean, they have whatever, essentially for all intents and purposes, 100% share. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to see how, how things shake out. I, I think the odds are we might see some preemptive spinoffs just get away um, um, from some of this litigation expense and just this this cloud hanging over the companies uh, for a long period of time. I wouldn't be shocked if we saw some preemptive spinoffs, but uh, we'll have to see. It just dep- depends how much tolerance the executives at, at these companies have for litigation risk and having this be a cloud over the company for a long period of time. And I think with this whole thing, it's a very natural lag that you experience, right? Where you have innovation and then regulation ultimately catches up to it. It's never something that moves in lockstep. You always have to kind of create rules around the circumstances that rules need to be created. And, uh, you know, all these businesses just operate in a way that a lot of companies have not operated before. You know, the, the scale that they're able to reach so quickly makes it a lot harder for legacy laws to make sense. Yeah, and I think you saw this. I mean, if you look back a couple hundred years ago, you have the Robert Barons and Carnegie and Vanderbilt and all these folks who have consolidated these huge transformational technological industries, achieved a lot of uh, large amounts of wealth, and then you had to have really the early days of antitrust law to break these folks up and to really inject uh, some life into competition in the U.S. And you know, a hundred years later, we're seeing more transformational technologies. You know, whether it's you know, the internet, search, all those sorts of things has also led to an extreme concentration of market power where it seems antitrust law needs to evolve to leave some breathing space uh, for new companies to operate. So it's not something that's unprecedented before. History doesn't repeat itself, but it kind of rhymes a little bit. See how things shake out. All right, folks, this is the end of part one of our roundtable discussion with all the industry-focused podcast hosts. We'll be all here this week of 4th of July with this roundtable discussion. We hope you'll enjoy our conversations. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For the whole industry-focused crew, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.